Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson. I'm a host for the New uh, Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Uh, and I'm going to be talking today with Dr. Jacobina Arch about her book, Bringing Whales Ashore, Oceans and the Environment of Early Modern Japan, uh, which is out from University of Washington Press in 2018. Bringing Whales Ashore is more than a history of whaling in Japan. Uh, Dr. Arch weaves together a wealth of diverse materials to demonstrate and explore the social, cultural, economic, intellectual, and even religious impacts of whales on the world of Tokyo, Japan. In doing so, she argues powerfully for a historical vision locating Japan within a larger global environment, and also uh, one that understands the fundamental interconnectedness of land and sea in particular. It is, as she writes, nonsensical to draw a clear dividing line between the archipelagic and the pelagic. Arch traces the history of whaling from its recorded origins in the late 16th century, across the stretch of the Tokugawa period, and into the modern. In doing so, bringing whales ashore not only contributes broadly to Tokugawa and to environmental history, but also engages with the modern and contemporary politics of whaling. So, uh, Dr. Arch, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. And I wonder if you could tell us uh, a little bit about how you came to this project. Yes, that's uh, slightly complicated. Um, I started this project in graduate school, but uh, it was in two different graduate schools. Um, So I initially went to graduate school for a doctorate in biology, and I was studying whale behavior. Uh, and I decided partway through that I didn't want to be a biologist. <laughs> um, and a while after that, I figured out what I wanted to do was to study history. And I initially thought I was going to do history of science. And I was interested in Japan um, just because I was interested in the language. Um, and I didn't realize I was going to bring my earlier work from studying whales into my history project. But my first semester of graduate school, my advisor who mostly focused on history of medicine, um, found this anatomical diagram, which ended up in chapter four, uh, that he said, well, you know, this is really fascinating. What's going on here? You could write a seminar paper on this. And 
that turned into a project because I realized there was so much more going on there. Um, and it brought together a lot of my earlier interests and background and um, just became a book. So it's been a fun process. Well, that's really interesting, especially um, I, I, uh, I'm i kind of going in the opposite direction where I am start, started out as a historian and more and more I find myself doing sort of history of science stuff. Uh, so it's sort of, we're sort of crossing paths. I guess you're, you're not supposed to cross the streams, but here we are. Um, so that, yeah, that's really, um, I didn't realize that you had that sort of bio, you know, uh, uh, background as um, a, a scientist, but it really does show through in your work. Um, so I want to I want to jump into then the book itself. Um, you, we're going to sort of walk through uh, beginning with the introduction. Um, I just want to sort of preview for both you and our audience that obviously, um, you know, you're sort of cursed to live in interesting times uh, with Japan's decision to leave the IWC, the International Whaling Commission, uh, just recently. And I want to come back to that maybe at the end, unless you'd like to talk about it here. Um, in, you know, your, your book is not sort of necessarily the, you know, a kind of advocacy book or anything like that, but it, it, it clearly has this political context, which um, I, I think is you know, even, you know, even more relevant than it ever has been uh, because of these kind of uh, developments. Would you like to talk about that now or should we talk about that later? Uh, I think we can save that for the end. Uh, it's okay. Yeah, I know it's just on everybody's mind, yeah. obviously. So I thought, I thought I should at least preview the fact that I'm aware of that. Okay, well, let's talk about the, the book itself then. Um, you start out by pointing out the relatively recent nature of organized uh, large-scale whaling in Japan, um, at least so far as we can determine from the historical record. Can you tell us a little bit about the recorded history of whaling in Japan, um, and especially how it how um, and when it takes on a recognizably sort of modern form? Yes, the um, the earliest recorded history of whaling, as far as actually specifically trying to go out and hunt and kill a whale, as opposed to um, there being beached whales that show up and people decide to do something with that, which did happen much earlier, um, really begins, the first record we have is from 1570. And these organized specialized whalers who are going out and specifically hunting whales it really takes off around the turn of the 1600s and um, that's not really the modern form of whaling um, in some ways it is and it certainly has some connections uh, but it has different techniques they were in small rowboats so that they would row out from shore they were uh, actually organized from a lookout on shore and they would haul the whale back to the beach, um, and the whole village and, and region would be involved in processing the whale. Uh, and so that's a whole different process than looking at a factory ship with catcher boats down in Antarctica or in the North Pacific um, that are processing the whales on board, um, and it's very few people in comparison to the whole population of Japan. Uh, so the shift into that more modern form really comes with a shift in technology to factory ships, um, or at least to engine-driven ships. You're going way offshore. You're not necessarily um, hunting with just hand-thrown harpoons and lances. And that really started to happen at the end of the 19th century, that transition, as that technology arose. Um, the, the practice that I mostly focus on is the earlier organized whaling, I mentioned in, in small rowboats and whaling groups, um, and that was 
mostly overlapping with the Tokugawa period. Um, so in the book, I, I mostly, I mentioned it started in 1570, um, but Essentially, 1600 to around 1900 overlaps pretty well with the Tokugawa period for these whaling groups. These were businesses, um, but they were village-based uh, businesses, and so um, each group would operate off of a particular beach. Um, some of them down in Kyushu would have multiple groups under the same management. Um, some of them were supported by the domainal government. Uh, some of them were more independent. There's actually a lot of variety in the type of whaling that they were doing, but they all kind of shared ideas. Uh, some of these whalers moved down the coast and um, operated in, say, um, the Kumano coast in what's now uh, Wakayama Prefecture um, in one season, and then they go down to Kyushu in another season. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting kind of differences and similarities within what's happening there. Um, and that kind of flattens out as you get to the end of the period that I look at because um, there's an increasing consolidation of whaling groups uh, into businesses where, uh, I forget what the date is exactly, but early in the 20th century, there's just one whaling company operating in Japan. Well, that's really interesting. I, I, I was sort of aware of the, you know, uh, industrialization and consolidation of of whaling in part through reading your book, but I didn't. I somehow hadn't caught on to the fact that it had gotten down to a single company. That's fascinating. Um, this industrialization um, aspect of it, I think, goes to another thing that you address in your introduction, um, which is the question of the sustainability both of historical and present whaling. Um, do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, and one of the things that people often do when they look back, and I don't tend to call it traditional whaling versus modern whaling, uh, because traditional whaling implies that it's this more sustainable, um, more limited impact kind of practice. It's more it's kind of aboriginal whaling style of, of thing. And um, it's not actually something which comes from seeing, okay, what were they doing? Oh, it's definite that they did not have any impact. It's just an assumption that people have that if it was in the past, it can't have had as much of an impact as it does now. And in part, that's true because in the modern era with uh, more industrial whaling, many thousands, tens of thousands more whales could be hunted in a season. But it doesn't mean that the earlier forms of whaling actually were totally sustainable. And one of the things that I found, the more that I looked into the information that we have available on these whaling groups and where they operated and their practices, the more you see that they, they move where they're hunting whales over the course of sometimes five, 10 years, sometimes over the course of a century or century and a half. But part of that is because the whaling isn't as good in the area where they started, right? So it's not sustainable within the place that it started, they have to move somewhere else to find more wells. And so this is the kind of thing that if you look at it from a modern perspective, people often have this idealized view of the past where humans were closer to nature and we, we were better at keeping in balance with uh, different kinds of animals as resources and things like that. And if even with this patchy information that we have about these Tokugawa period whaling groups, you can see if you look for it, they don't say it, you know, they don't say, well, we started off in Ise Bay and we moved exactly because there were no whales anymore. 
but it's implied they moved to find better whaling and by 1800 no one is whaling in Ise and Mikawa Bays because there's no whales there. Yeah, and in this sense, I think it seemed to me in reading the book that you're engaging in this much larger dialogue, not only about the you know, extinction of the uh, prehistoric mega, uh, megafauna like um, you know, mammoths and so on and so forth, but also, um, you know, it reminded me in that sense of uh, Brett Walker's book about the you know the the extinction of the Japanese wolf, which is pushing back against this same sort of assumed pre-modern, you know, virtuous, sustainable uh, uh, engagement with nature. Um, so I wanted to uh, get into some, some a little bit deeper into the, the book itself, and in the sense that the title is Bringing Whales Ashore. And it seems to me that's part of um, an argument for recontextualizing Japanese history, um, not just as um, sort of archipelagic as the sort of island history, but also as pelagic as you know a marine history, um, seeing the land and ocean as fundamentally connected and interdependent uh, rather than isolated from each other. Um, so in your conclusion, you, you you put it this way. You said the history of Tokugawa Japan must include its maritime spaces because parts of that space were so integral to its terrestrial spaces that drawing a line between them is nonsensical. And by the way, I appreciate your bluntness about this. Um, I think we, we academics could use a lot more of that. But can you tell us a little bit more about this, especially your how this formulation um, helps us to see history differently? Yeah, one of the things that I found... Uh, that came out of following where whales show up in this in these histories. Where are people talking about them? Where are there actual pieces of whales? What are the people who are hunting whales doing and where do they go? Is that you can't just look at the water. You can't just look at the coastal spaces, that they show up all over Japan. They show up interconnected. You've got people who are selling whale oil from Kyushu in the city of Edo. Um, you have people who are talking about whales, even though they've never been to the coast. Um, there's ways in which they get blended into the culture as a whole, not just the coastal areas. And so you, when you see that sort of thing happening, you see people who are being sent from Osaka down to the coast of, or from Wakayama down to the coast where uh, the village of Taiji and Koza and these other whaling villages are, um, they're coming to this strange place. They're they're remarking on, oh, what are these people doing? But they are connected to the thriving cultural centers of Osaka and Kyoto and Edo in ways that our ordinary histories of Japan don't tend to talk about. And so the the human spaces um, go out into the water more than we tend to assume. But also the things that are in the water go into the human including terrestrial spaces in ways that we often don't see either. And by following whales around, I, I really started to see this much more. And I don't, I don't think it's just whales that this is happening with, but whales are really big. They're very strange. They're impressive. And so they make a mark in places where other forms of fish might be less visible, right? So I think they're, they're a good example of the many different ways that the maritime spaces weren't a separate realm for people, that things from those spaces showed up in other spaces. Um, and it shouldn't be a surprise. It's an archipelago. There's a lot of coastline. Everybody knows that the Japanese uh, eat a lot of seafood, right? But somehow that doesn't translate into 
looking for, well, where does this happen? How does this uh, end up in these different spaces? In the Tokugawa, I think in particular, because we know that this was a period in which they were more isolated. And there's plenty of research um, that, I don't know, over the past 30, 40 years at this point, talking about how the closed country wasn't really that closed and they had plenty of information coming in, if nothing else. But we still tend to, to forget that just because P Japanese people weren't supposed to go to other countries across the ocean, they're still in contact with what's happening in the ocean because whales are a really great way to connect these together. They migrate thousands of miles. They're moving throughout the entire Pacific. So that means that people who are intersecting with some of that migration are, whether they mean to be or not, connected with the rest of the Pacific. Um, and that is especially true as you get into the 19th century when American whalers are hunting those same populations in a different space in the ocean and that impacts how many are migrating past Japan. Um, but it also is something that I think more generally, not just in thinking about whales, um, we are terrestrial, you know, humans live on land, we can live on the ocean in some way, but you have to keep going back for food and other kinds of things. You could build a platform and there's people who live on, for example, oil platforms, um, but they don't live there their entire lives, right? And so it's hard for us to remember that that space is part of the space that influences what's going on historically. And I think that um, as you go through the Tokugawa period and you start seeing how much people are dependent on the resources that they get from at least the coastal waters. And then in the cases of whales, not just coastal waters, because they're bringing resources from all over the Pacific. Um, you can't just look at islands as bits of land. You have to look at them as connected by and with what's going on in the water. And so that's uh, something that as the more I looked at where whales were, the more I realized that you can't separate them out from where people are living and growing rice and doing other things in the mountains. Yeah, and this actually is a really nice segue into your chapter one, which is seeing from the sea a whale's eye view of Japan, um, in which, again, you're sort of you're, you're uh, beginning in earnest to do this sort of reorientation of history by attempting to tease out um, what can be known about whales uh, and the waters around Japan, what what those might have meant to whales um, before the modern whaling industry. Um, what what do you find uh, about this question of like how how what is a whale's uh, view of Japan? Well, I find that frustratingly attempts might be better than succeeding on that, but. Um... We don't, I mean, we can't talk to whales. We can't know exactly what they saw and, and what it was like for them. Um, but we do have to, I think, make the effort to pull away from our understanding of what the ocean looks like now um, and where we see whales now and really look back and, and see what kinds of evidence we have for differences, for what things might have been like then. Um, the only way we can really know where there were whales is when humans record that. And most of the humans at this point in time who are recording that are whalers. <laughs> so it's not comprehensive, certainly. But one of the things that I wanted to do was to try to blend together um, information about abundance um, from catches and kind of extrapolating from those a little bit in one direction. And then also information from modern biology today about where we find whales how they live, what their populations are like, 
um, and, and work backwards from that to bring those two together. And one of the problems there is that even now, people are still very surprised by how little we know about whales, um, how we don't even know where the breeding areas of right whales in the Pacific are today, never mind what they might have been before. There's, I think it's less than 100 North Pacific right whales left, so their breeding areas might be totally different now than when there were tens of thousands of them. Uh, and so there's these big problems in trying to see, well, what might it have been like before we had this big impact of the modern whaling industry? And, and by that, I, I start with the uh, American pelagic whalers in the mid-19th century onwards. Um, but I think it's, it's something that we have to specifically sit down and set out to do, like pull away our assumptions about what the ocean looks like. Um, I went, when I was in Japan doing my research, I went to the town of Taiji, and uh, one of the people who's a descendant of the leader of the whaling group there took me out to some of the lookout places and things like that. And we went to one of these lookout sites. And you look out, and you see this open ocean, and there's no whales. We were there for hours. We no whales. You could be there for weeks. There'd be no whales. And yet, this was a place where the whales would swim past frequently enough that somebody looked out there and said, we should try to catch those. Um, we have to go back and reimagine that open water that seems empty with all sorts of whales swimming in it and what that might have done. And then you have to put a whole bunch of boats in there and you have to, you know, you have to really rethink what this looks like. Um, and the biggest thing to, I think, keep in mind when trying to look back at this historical moment, what were the whales doing? What was it like there is that there were a lot of them, that there were large groups moving through, that there was a connection that they had um, that you just don't see now, that you'd have to imagine something like the migration of the gray whales in California, where people go and they can see and you can, you can watch, and in one day you can guarantee you'll see a whale during the migration period. Well, that is something you don't see in Japan now, but you, you have to think about that being the case before. And, and there's then still some frustrating gaps of like, well, so where were they going? when they went south <laughs> and, and where were they feeding when they weren't migrating past the shore and things like that. But at least we can start to remind ourselves that this ocean looked very different, um, that the, the populations were different, what they were responding to was different. Um, and I think that's an important place to start when you think about the history of, of whales, not with what people were doing, but what might we know about what the whales were doing? Yeah, I think that, that um, you know, sort of, I, I I often feel that when we're talking about the environment, and I think environmental history sort of falls into the same um, category. You know, one of our big problems is a kind of failure of imagination. You know, so often the the issues are either so big or so far away that they really just sort of they challenge us in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm I appreciated that chapter one, this attempt to you know string together what limited information we have um, to give something of a, a picture of what that might have been like. Um, in chapter two, uh, bringing whales ashore, whalers offshore, coastal networks, uh, and the history of whaling, um, you shift focus to the whaling groups along the coasts of early modern Japan and the ways that uh, whaling and whales were integral to coastal communities who engaged in whaling. And this is something you began to address uh, earlier in the conversation. Um, and so I want to get a little bit more into that. Before doing that, though, I just wanted to say that you make this 
casual uh, observation that, uh, and I quote, one of the drivers for the development of specialized whaling groups around the same time as the start of the Tokugawa peace was the availability of people who could be whalers instead of fighters serving warlords, uh, since whaling was a martial and masculine occupation. Uh, this was just, it's just one of those moments where I think you kind of, you know, and again, you made it as kind of an offhand comment, but it's going to stick with me, I think, for a very long time. Um, anyway, uh, in addition to exploring the ways that uh, whaling itself changed over the centuries, um, you make the argument that through the cooperation or networking, uh, at least whales brought together within whaling villages um, uh, scattered along their migration routes, uh, and they helped strengthen ties between villages um, as much as six or 700 miles apart on different islands. And this struck me as particularly interesting um, as a contribution to our understanding of social change, uh, the coalescence of larger regional archipelagic, et cetera, these sort of collectivities and identities in early modern Japan, uh, a topic on which much has been written about, um, and uh, but not in this particular context, right? It's usually print culture, movement of people, goods, ideas um, created by the system of alternate attendance, et cetera. Um, so your chapter is also kind of an example of how to weave environmental and social history together to expand a view of Japan um, into one that sees the islands as part of a vast Pacific network. Um, at the same time that you emphasize your point that the uh, sort of liminal location of coastal villages shouldn't be an excuse to marginalize them in history. Um, so can you tell us a, a sort of a little bit more about the chapter itself? Yeah, I mean, one of the things in, in looking at the whaling groups, uh, I mentioned earlier in the conversation that um, these were individual groups, you know, they're separate businesses, but they also talk to each other. Um, in fact, there's some groups where um, they, in the, in 1675, um, this one person in Taiji invented a new method of whaling that involved setting nets in the water and driving the whales into the nets. Um, so it would slow them down and allow them to be captured more easily. And there was actually another whaler in Tosa who wanted to learn how to do this. And he actually apprenticed himself, essentially, um, to this, he, you know, he joined this whaling group in Taiji and, and he just tried to absorb as much information as possible and then went back because he had asked, how do you do this? And they wouldn't tell him. He had to come kind of steal the information um, for his own group. Um, so there's there's some... Uh, sharing on purpose, there's some stealing of information, there's some uh, people moving back and forth. Um, there's just a lot more connectedness between these villages in different domains than I expected from my understanding of Tokugawa history before I started the project. And so I think that's something that uh, shows in part what we can get out of looking at coastal villages, which people assume are just off in the fringes and not connected to anything. Well, clearly they are connected because they're talking to each other and they're moving back and forth. Um, but also, as you had mentioned, they're part of the Pacific as well. So it's not just looking at movements across domainal boundaries, but also seeing how these interconnections of people were embedded in broader perspectives. And so the idea of networks, I think, worked for me to think about all these different groups. And yeah, some of them are slightly different from others, but they fit in a system, right? There are nodes within this system or, or network. And it's not just whalers. Um, and one of the things that I found is that uh, as the Tokugawa solidifies into a specific governmental system, you get shifts in land use, you get shifts in coastal shipping when everybody suddenly has to send their tax rights into the shogunate. Um, 
and you get all these new specialized fisheries like whaling. So there's a whole set of different kinds of networks that are being developed. And the whalers are one example of that, pushing out into the ocean and bringing that back into the spaces that people are living in. Um, and the, the impact of each of these whaling groups is hard to trace because some of the whaling groups don't have any records left. We know they existed, but we don't have their business records. We don't have catch data. Um, but we do know um, that they, they didn't have the huge impact, immediate impact that American whalers coming into the Pacific had. But one of the things, if you think about it as an ongoing network and watch how things shift, um, as I mentioned, the, the Ise Bay whalers, they started there and yet they're not doing it 150 years later in that area because they had to go somewhere else. Those people moving somewhere else actually physically moved themselves to start up groups in other areas. So they joined different villages, they went between domains, they did all sorts of things that we don't normally think of peasants being able to do if we follow the kind of party line of needing travel passes and, and these kinds of things. Um, so I think that's one thing that I found was really interesting about just following movement of people and, and what whaling did for that. It wasn't just them moving out to catch whales, it was all the other things that they ended up doing as well. And I do think that other fisheries might have similar things. I haven't looked into them, but it would be really interesting to see um, if these coastal villages, if we stopped ignoring them and saying, we don't know how they fit into the, you know, they're not really farmers, what do we do with them? Um, what does that tell us about what's actually happening in the much more dynamic system of, of Tokugawa Japan? Um, I think that's, that's something that really is wide open right now. So. Yeah, and I, I, I think that this uh, actual contribution to um, the way we think about mobility more generally, you know, that it's, uh, is, is a big part of what you're doing here, both in the way that, you know, as you say, the you know, whales are both uh, animals of the ocean. And also once they are, you know, brought on shore, um, in various ways have enormous social effects. And then the people who are, you know, involved in those processes, um, are mobile in and of themselves. I thought this was a really, um, you know, compelling part of the story that you're telling. Um, and it, it also is a big part of the story you're telling in chapter three in particular, which is moving whales from coasts to mountains, the circulation and use of whale products. Um, as this chapter title suggests, um, it's about the circulation and use of whale product, uh, products in, in, in a changing early modern economy. Um, right, that early modern Japanese whaling was a commercial enterprise that also tied people more closely to dependence on and awareness of the marine environment. Uh, whalers made use of as many different pieces of whales as they could to maximize profits. Um, and you argue that the Edo period urbanites in particular uh, rarely had a chance to see whales in person, but they had many opportunities to interact with the products of whaling. Um, what were some of those products and in what ways did they affect uh, society, the economy, uh, and the environment of uh, Tokugawa Japan. Yeah, there there were a lot of different products that could be pulled out of one whale. Um, meat is one that I'm sure most people would think of first, uh, given the kind of debate about whaling now. Um, but it's uh, actually something that doesn't keep very long, even if you boil or salt it to preserve it. Um, it has to stay within a relatively small region. Um, although in some cases, um, Osaka is within the region that actually is close enough to whaling villages that um, you could get whale meat there. So regional doesn't mean not many people are eating it, um, but there's actually a lot of the other products I find more interesting because they travel much further. So oil, uh, which comes from boiling down the blubber, but also um, if, you, if you boil the meat to preserve it, the oil comes off and so you get oil that way as well. 
Um, that could, was often initially used uh, for lamp oil, so for just lights, uh, but it then became used for other things. And the most interesting one, I think, is it was used as a pesticide on rice crops. Um, after the Kyoho famine, they discovered that it would actually uh, kill those particular pests uh, that had caused that famine. And so in Kyushu especially, which was hit pretty hard by that, um, there were domains that had policies to have stockpiles of whale oil available in case there was an outbreak of these plant hoppers or locusts. Um, and so that's the kind of thing where, you know, you don't, you don't automatically think of agriculture when you think of what kinds of whale products might people have been dealing with. Um, but they also would grind up the bones for fertilizer. So that's also another aspect of agriculture that's influenced um, not as preferentially as some of the other small fish, um, the herring fishery that David Howell writes about. Um, some of the other fisheries, sardines, um, produce a lot more of the fertilizer type of product from the marine space, but whales were part of that as well. And then there's just um, other sort of miscellaneous uses of whale parts, which I think are really fascinating. Uh, the baleen, uh, the, the strips of, uh, it's actually keratin, so it's like fingernails or horn um, that comes down uh, from the jaw in baleen whales. They don't have teeth, they have this instead. Um, and it's a very flexible substance. And so it was actually used instead of spring steel, which they didn't have, in things like making movable eyes and mouths on the puppet, the Bunaku puppet theater heads. Um, so, you know, it influences an entire style of theater. Uh, and they have um, a really a boom in interest in these clockwork dolls, the katakuri dolls, that you wind them up and there's the ones that they um, they serve tea, you know, they roll around and serve tea and, and uh, do archery and do calligraphy and these sorts of things. And those are all driven by a, a wound up piece of baleen. Um, so there's all sorts of different places. If you start looking for whale products, um, they end up in places that you would not expect to be finding animal parts at all or that you would not expect to be finding particularly marine-based uh, products. And so they show up in many aspects of the economy. Um, they are hugely, the, the lamp oil was actually lighting Edo. Um, so, you know, the city requires a huge amount of lights and they're shipping oil all the way from Kyushu up to Edo because they need so much oil. Um, and so there's things like that, that um, without these whale products, the economy would look really different. Um, and they also show that the economy in, as a whole relies really heavily on these marine products, not just on things like rice and cash crops inland. Um, and so, you know, I mentioned that, you know, other fish, which at the time whales were considered fish, uh, I know they're not now, but um, if you think about fisheries, whaling is still considered a fishery. Um, other fish uh, also were a, an important part of this economy, right? So the kind of economic boom that happens over the course of the Tokugawa period starts to rely really heavily on access to these new maritime resources. And that's a big environmental shift, right? So um, Conrad Thomas talks a lot about um, the kinds of sustainable forestry that are going on and you know what's happening when you're shifting the fields out into the mountains and really marginal areas of Tohoku and things like that. And, you make that work by adding fertilizer. You make that work by bringing in other inputs, most of which are marine. So what you're actually doing is you're not in a closed loop system where the economy is taking off 
from some kind of recycling and, and totally sustainable renewable resources, you're just expanding what kind of resources are being fed into it. Um, so the agriculture is not somehow magically finding a way to produce just enough for the population and, and that alone. It's in fact expanding, but it's expanding in ways that are not visible if you only look at the terrestrial input. Um, and so that's one aspect that I think is, is really fascinating about looking at whale products. Um, beyond, you know, when you think about whales as food, you usually think about meat, but this is a way of thinking about whales impacting food more broadly in, in the agricultural sector, um, as well as the, the cultural impact of, of just really interesting um, inventions like the baleen springs, which probably feeds a little bit more into the, the next chapter. But This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, yes, in fact, you've done my segue for me. Thank you. I appreciate that. Because, of course, your, your next chapter um, gets beyond the sort of um, you know, narrow, strict um, sort of sphere of economics and into uh, the, the cultural and intellectual uh, impact of whales. Um, it's called Seeding Stories, Whales as Culturally, uh, excuse me, Cultural and Scholarly in Inspiration. Um, and you're examining the types of knowledge, um, and, uh, and that's all the way from you know, natural history, anatomy, illustrations, etc., um, that uh, into which uh, whales are incorporated, and, and how those uh, the incorporation of whales influences those systems of knowledge and practices, etc., in early modern Japan. Um, also, as you said yourself, it's it's where. I guess your project or originates with that uh, anatomical uh, uh, figure. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, tell uh, us all about the, yeah. Like what, what is, what is the impact of whales in sort of the, the intellectual life of, of Edo period Japan? Yeah. It's really interesting to, to think about this, this figure because um, the only anatomical diagrams that you find in this period are of humans and whales, um, which is not what, we would expect in looking at you know where are you figuring out how anatomy works. But obviously the, the anatomical diagrams of humans are imported from Europe and then people are doing their own dissections and trying to figure out how to make this make sense in the medical understanding of Japan. Um, but in Europe, which where they're borrowing this from, people did a lot of different animal dissections, right? So there's there's anatomical textbooks that show humans and fish and birds and insects and cats and all sorts of different things. And so it's really interesting to me that, that you just get humans and whales. Um, there's something going on there, right? There's a cultural importance to thinking about whales that shows up in this particular area. And it shows how important this understanding of how whales internal organs are organized um, coming out of this hands-on whaling industry, but you know, if you're if you're flensing a whale on the beach, it's not a nice little dissection where everything is really clear. It's a mess. <laughs> it's very difficult to see how all these pieces work together in the ways that they're actually diagrammed. And the diagrams are, are quite accurate. Well, some of them are quite accurate. Some of them are clearly copies of copies and they don't look much like a proper anatomical whale. But they show the development of this curiosity about nature that's happening in this period, this this drive to understand the 
kinds of things that are changing what is important, right? This new type of medicine shows up with this anatomical diagram, but also this new type of natural history, right? The Honjogaku developments in this period where they're, they're doing the same thing as what happened in Europe that, that led to a natural history that led to biology, which is they're seeing a difference between their texts that explain what the world is supposed to be like in Japan is Chinese texts, and they're actually supposed to be um, medical texts. They're, they're explaining all of the medicinal properties of all the different substances in the world, but that's pretty much everything, right? Um, plants, animals, rocks, all these sorts of things all have potentially medicinal purposes. So this is a kind of natural philosophy system that they have that some of these things don't grow, like ginseng does not grow in Japan natively until they import it. And so there's these things they're trying to figure out, okay, well, what is this? We don't have it here. But also there are things in Japan that aren't in the books. Um, and I've actually looked at the, the Bensao Gangmu, which is the Chinese uh, Materia Medica text that they were um, using to try to understand what all these things were. Um, and it doesn't really, it doesn't have an entry for whales. It doesn't have a lot of the, the seafood types of things that the Japanese were very familiar with. And so there's this whole area that people have to figure out how it fits into this kind of encyclopedic knowledge. And the process of understanding these new organisms, which aren't new to the Japanese per se, it's not like in Europe where they went to Australia and found a platypus and said, whoa, what's going on? Um, but it is saying these texts don't match what we have. And that develops a whole kind of science of understanding nature that didn't exist before. And whales are part of that. Um, they don't fit into the system. They're very strange animals. Um, people who are scholars of medicine, but also of just European knowledge um, are, are crossing all these what we now have as separate disciplinary streams to understand these things from different angles. And, and some of these are just storytelling, right? They don't have to be um, scientific or scholarly per se. That's one aspect of it. Um, but they also, these same people um, were going and they were doing illustrations, which then somebody else saw and put into a story or these other kinds of blended, um, somebody who's a Confucian scholar goes and talks to somebody who is a Dutch studies scholar who talks to somebody who just is uh, a friend of the family who happens to be really interested in theater and all these things kind of cycle around. And so there's also um, comic stories. There's a couple of really interesting Kibyoshi that come out um, capitalizing on the fact that a whale stranded in the Shinagawa River in Edo um, and everybody went down to see it because this is really unusual. And the next year, there's a couple of, of major comic novels coming out saying, hey, yes, we can talk about that, right? So they, there's all sorts of different ways that people are talking about whales. Um, and I think by tracing those, you really see the complexity of the intersections of the types of understanding that people have. There's, there's a really messy set of um, you know, jack of all trades kind of understanding of the world that's going on. You don't have people, you, can, you have people who will call themselves, for example, a Confucian scholar, but one Confucian scholar who happened to be related to a Dutch studies scholar um, could then end up getting dragged into understanding stuff about whale anatomy just because he was asked to go um, find out a little bit more while you're traveling, could you for me? And then you, so there's, these disciplinary boundaries that we are used to now really are not very solid at all. And it's quite interesting to see all the different places that somebody gets inspired by a totally different genre um, and comes out with a, a story or a text or an illustration, um, all sorts of different things that uh, then get circulated around and people copy them and 
and they don't put any names on them and they don't know where they come from and it's very frustrating but it's also really fascinating so the anatomical diagram um we know who did the art but we don't know why we don't know who commissioned it or who they talked to or anything like that unfortunately but it still it sparks off a lot of really interesting discussion about understanding the world in this period yeah, and I think the the anatomical diagram um, is actually a really nice way to transition into chapter five as well, because as you said, um, you know, whales are the only non-human animals that get their own, you know, sort of genre of anatomical drawings in in uh, the Tokugawa period. And your final chapter, uh, memorializing whales, uh, religious and spiritual responses to whale deaths, contributes, um, you know, to this argument about the embeddedness of whales in the life of early modern Japan, but also so, um, it is specifically interested in the special uh, relationship that humans felt with whales. You look at the religious beliefs and practices that evolved to dictate that complex relationship. Um, and I was quite surprised when I read that um, whales were commemorated in the most human fashion, as you put it, uh, with posthumous Buddhist names recorded in a death register um, and funeral or memorial rites that were very similar to humans. Um, and so this, again, I said, you know, I think it, it relates to your original interest in this anatomical diagram. Um, and what can it tell us about um, how whales were conceived of um, in Tokugawa and what their influence was on sort of the spiritual life of Edo? Yeah, and there's, there's a couple different ways to look at that. One sort of broad spectrum way to look at that is the fact that the categories that we expect don't hold for where, where whales fit into nature. What is nature? What is spiritual? You know, what kind of organisms have particular closeness to people or importance are not where we would necessarily expect them to be. Um, the fact that whales get treated very similar to humans, or dead whales at least, too, um, is quite different. And you would expect maybe that people would treat domestic animals more closely, right? They live with them um, for much longer periods of time. They understand them more closely. Uh, they see their personalities. And yet somehow those kinds of divisions don't make sense to the people in Tokugawa, Japan. The things that make sense to them are that spiritually these beings seem to be quite similar to people. And so um, this ends up making us really think, so what is natural? You know, where do we put dividing lines around things? Um, it's very culturally constructed. And then more specifically, um, and I think some of this comes from the fact that whales are special in the sense of they're huge. They're really impressive. They're awe-inspiring. There's a kind of thing that even if you just see a little bit of a whale coming out of the water, it's clearly not a tiny little fish. Like this is something really impressive. And I think that intersects really well with the Shinto ideas of understanding where Kami lives in the universe that you live in as well. Um, in one sense, finding you, you see a really big tree and, oh, a Kami is in there, or in a mountain or a large rock. And, and these are things that are impressive to people. And that sense of awe is a reflection, it was interpreted as a reflection of, well, there must be a Kami there. And I didn't actually see very much that, that said specifically that whales were treated like Kami, but I do think that same kind of sense of awe, that, that focused attention that, that causes an emotional response from people, and the emotional response is interpreted within spirituality. And so people try to figure out why is it that I'm impressed by this animal? And one of the things that they're impressed by is the behavior of whales. So uh, mother whales will actually defend their young. And so they see that 
they'll, they'll hang around in a dangerous situation trying to save their calf from being hunted by whalers. Um, and so people thought that, well, they, they feel compassion towards others, right? They, they care about their young. And that's a very important Buddhist value. And so that fits within a framework of understanding of, okay, um, if you're compassionate, you're a good person. They're kind of a person then, aren't they? Um, so there's ways in which um, seeing and interpreting the behavior of whales, um, and not in a way that makes them more human per se, but, but resonates, I guess, with ways that we want to be. Um, they see the migration of whales as being like a pilgrimage. They interpret these kinds of things that they're seeing in ways that they try to make sense of the spiritual landscape in which these kinds of animals could appear. And in fact, the, the spiritual landscape ends up being not particularly divided between human and non-human in ways that uh, show up in the death register. They get the same kind of posthumous Buddhist names that humans would get, right? So they're their essential being is considered to be something different from the very physically different creature that clearly is not human. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. And I think it helps us to rethink how we look at the natural world, the assumptions that we have about, well, of course, people are going to care more about this particular aspect of nature or things like that, that these are quite situationally dependent. And, and I think that, um, it's hard to explain exactly why it gets expressed specifically as essentially human souls um, and why there are memorial rites for the fetuses of pregnant whales that they killed. And they, they felt really bad about, for some reason in particular, about this fetus that was never born. And, and you know, the whaling group is doing this to make money off of the pieces of whales that they can sell, but they actually bury the fetus. They don't chop it up and sell it and then just give a memorial right, which they do for the adults. And so there's there's ways in which it intersects with human feelings about um, children, uh, with feelings about where people fit in the broader spiritual space of the world, um, and in ways that are often surprising to us coming from the outside of Japan, but also to us modern inhabitants of the world who've been influenced by very different perspectives on how things are supposed to work. Yeah, I thought this was, um, you know, particularly compelling, you know, thinking about where then, you know, whales fit in a kind of Buddhist cosmology as, uh, as well of these sort of, you know, hierarchies of rebirth. Um, and the, you know, what you, your, your sort of anecdote about the, the way that fetuses were treated seemed to me particularly, um, you know, fascinating from, from that respect. You know, I thought this was, you, you're trying to walk this very fine line between saying that whales are, you know, to some extent anthropomorphized and, but then not exactly. And they have this liminal position uh, where, you know, between human and non-human. And I thought that actually fit nicely into your overall overall argument, um, which is about these kind of mobilities and liminalities between land and sea um, and how, you know, whales fit into this very complex picture in which land and sea are fundamentally more connected than they are separate. Um, so that, that sort of gets us, that brings us to your conclusion where, uh, you're really talking very much about, um, among other things, the, uh, contemporary significance of your work. And that brings us back to, um, the sort of, uh, the elephant in the room, the whale in the room, if you'd like to call it that, which is the, uh, upcoming, uh, abandonment of the IWC by Japan. So I wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, when I was working on this project, I really was mostly interested in the Tokugawa period. Um, but I knew that the reason why people are interested in whaling in Japan is because of modern Japanese whaling. Um, and it's not totally disconnected from the Tokugawa period because proponents of whaling in Japan often cite their long whaling tradition, which goes back at least through the Tokugawa. Some of them go back to Jomon. Um, but what is this whaling tradition, right? There, there wasn't really anything, certainly not in English, that actually specifically said what was going on there. And so that was what I was really digging into. But I knew that the interest from outside of people who just are already interested in Tokugawa Japan was going to come from this question of, well, how does this fit into modern Japanese whaling? And I do think that you, you really have to understand how complicated the situation was and how different Japan looked in the Tokugawa period from today to see why continuity is really quite thin in the transition between Tokugawa whaling and modern whaling. When you start being on factory ships that are thousands of miles away from Japan, um, there's a few hundred people who are involved in the industry They don't really, I mean, there's some community connection, but it's not the same kind of regional embeddedness. The products do not circulate the same way and have the same kind of stories told about them. I mean, most people that you ask in Japan don't have much of an opinion about whaling. They don't they don't see pieces of whales all over the place. Um, and so there's this sense where I just wanted people to see what this tradition that they were harkening back to really looks like and, and see how different it is from what's going on now. Not to say there are no continuities, but that we have to be much more careful about making connections and saying this is culturally important, like to which culture? You know, what to whom in this culture, right? Is it to everybody or is it just to a small group? Um, is it just to a region? Is it, you know, how does this really work? And so I think that one of the things that is really important separate from the interesting aspects of Tokugawa history that I got into in the book that, that really resonates much more with this contemporary question um, is this question of, of how do you deal with sustainable whaling, right? Because one of the reasons they're abandoning the IWC, but they're saying that we're going to follow the rules. We're going to practice sustainable whaling. Um, and there's a kind of assumption in there, well, of course, we've done it before, so we can do it again, except that, as I mentioned, I'm not sure how sustainable much of Tokugawa whaling really was. It was on a smaller scale. And so in some sense, small enough scale doesn't have an impact. But we saw an impact. We saw groups that, that collapsed frequently over the course of the period and regions that stopped being able to hunt whales. Um, and so I think we have to be much more careful about thinking what can be sustainable and how do we know? How do we keep track of what kind of impact you're having? Because I think the problem often comes when um, it's, oh, wait, it's collapsing, so therefore it wasn't sustainable. Well, how do, we, how do we stop it before it gets to the collapse and realize that we need to change how things are happening? And so I think the conversation about sustainability is another aspect of this question of, of contemporary whaling. Um, that doesn't come up as much related to tradition, and I think it could. Um, and I, I don't know that there's an easy answer to what's going to happen. It'll be interesting to see where things go. I did not expect uh, my book to come out and right in the year that they decided that they were going to make this huge change in 
a Japanese whaling. So, um, I, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how things change. Yeah, and uh, speaking of, of uh, how things change and where they're going, uh, of course, one of our traditional last questions here on the podcast is, uh, what is it that you're up to now and what are you hoping to uh, do in the future? What's, what's, in the, what's coming down the pipe for your research? Well, I'm still interested in marine environmental history in Tokugawa, Japan, and I think that the, the next area that I want to look at is the coastal sailors um, and to think about the transportation along the coast and how is that network, you know, thinking about not just extracting things from the ocean, but actually relying on the ocean. What does that look like? Uh, and so I've been looking into the Beisaisen the, or, or the Senkokubune, the, the specific type of cargo ship that developed during this period and is adapted to a specific type of not just physical marine environment, but also cultural environment of people not being allowed to sail offshore to go to other countries. And, you know, what is this, what kinds of things does this tell us about what it's like to be out on the water? So instead of bringing denizens of the ocean onto the land, I'm thinking about, well, what do you take? You take land-based people and you put them out on the water and what happens? So that's where I'm going next. Great. Well, I will be looking forward to that when it comes out. And uh, when when your next book comes out, please do come back on the podcast. Um, but for today, thank you so much for uh, spending you know close to an hour with us. We really appreciate it. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have you back soon. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure.